Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Kevin Gostola. Kevin is a journalist for FireDogLake.com and a co-host of the weekly podcast radio show, Unauthorized Disclosure. He regularly covers whistleblowing, secrecy, and WikiLeaks. He extensively covered the court-martial of Chelsea Manning and co-authored Truth and Consequences, the U.S. v. Private Manning with the nation's Greg Mitchell. Uh, Kevin Gostola, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's great to finally have you on here. Uh, I hope we can fit in a few topics that you've been dealing with lately on the theme of uh, cracking down on whistleblowers and punishing the wrong people. Um, One is the uh, current punishment of CIA whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling. Uh, Another is crackdowns on people with any sort of ties to WikiLeaks. Uh, But let's start briefly with another, which is the recent string of FBI arrests of alleged sympathizers with with ISIS, because this this really gets to me because it's used as an argument for a war thousands of miles away. You wrote last week about a college student arrested in New York. Can you explain briefly uh, what happened and how this fits into the pattern? Yeah, so this, this college student, he's um, about 20 years old and was arrested for conspiring. They, they charged this person with conspiring to provide material support and uh, resources. So a lot of times when you hear, just for, I don't know how aware your listeners are, but generally when you hear the words material support for terrorism, chances are they, the government has very scant amount of evidence that they were involved in any sort of, of, of plotting of, of terrorism attacks. I, I can't say in a general sense that that means that they never supported or sympathized with actions of, uh, of groups like the Islamic State in this case. Um, this, this young man, uh, the government would appear to have evidence that on Twitter he was talking about how he supports ISIS attacks and, and other things of that nature. But I think the question becomes, what kind of society do we want to live in? If somebody is using their account and just indicating that they support acts of violence, how do we handle that? Do we, do we put them under a sting operation by the FBI? Or do we, I guess, how do you handle that? Does the FBI go out to his house and say, uh, we don't like that you're, you're doing this? And we want to know if there's something more to it. Are you are you working with ISIS or something? But but you can see like there's something I believe that our country should be struggling with because there are many many young people who are seeing what we do overseas in our wars. Uh, they see war crimes. They see people go unpunished and held unaccountable. They're not quite sure who's on the side of justice, but they see the Islamic State as this opponent of the United States, and they're very young, and they they become convinced that maybe the Islamic State is some kind of an answer. 
You, you mentioned sting operation, and that seems like the pattern since September 11th, if not before. And in particular, in the New York area, all of these setups uh, of people, the, these stories of ISIS in Brooklyn, where, as far as we know, there was no contact with ISIS overseas. A recent arrest in in Ohio for you know communicating with people he believed to be members of ISIS. That is to say, with FBI agents. But this story that you wrote up uh, of this college student last week, it seems that the FBI actually stumbled upon somebody who seemed suspicious, as opposed to having initiated the whole thing themselves. Yeah, well, what was fascinating is that this person seemed to be doing all of the behavior that would uh, would, would make him a threat, and that's what I was surprised about. I've read so many of these cases where it's so clear that the informant, the paid informant usually, is pushing uh, an unwitting individual or, or someone who's 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 got some kind of uh, of, 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 a, of a difficulty it has a mental illness and they are pushing that person along towards uh, basically detonating a dummy explosive but uh, they actually seem to have found someone but they blew their cover uh, I want people to know that one of the things that's really fascinating about this case last week uh, and there are two other people who were arrested in connection with this thing since then. Uh, but the thing that's fascinating is that this young man actually was aware that people were tracking him, and they uncovered the law enforcement vehicles. And they also, he also was able to uncover the confidential informant that was deployed against him. So whoever they sent out did a really horrible job, and that set back the operation at, at least a month, if not longer. And so I have no idea what this person was planning to do. I can just tell you that before the government got involved in it uh, and was was actively targeting him, he, he there is no plot. I just we should make that clear that in the indictment there is no plot suggested. So there's there's one of two things. One, they never figured out that he had a plot, and they and this individual, this young college student, kept his ideas about what he could do to himself, and the security of him was he never compromised his operational security i guess would be the, the phrase to use or there was absolutely none and in most of these cases as we as we've looked at uh, fbi sting operations in in recent years there is no plot uh, until an, an informant or or even an undercover fbi agent gives these guys uh, their ideas by feeding them things like uh, like a, like an anarchist cookbook and saying you could you could use this to learn how to build a bomb or giving them other manuals offline or or saying here's a recent issue of Al Qaeda's Inspire magazine why don't you you read up on something in here and then that sort of like sets the stage for whatever they're going to do next. So so this is someone with no weapons and no plot and no clear crime committed, but who has tweeted the wrong things and web-searched for the wrong things and perhaps uh, translated or promoted the wrong things online. And that's enough, apparently? Yeah, I think that's... And, and that, to me, is what's the most fascinating thing about this case. You know, if, if all the stuff that he's doing is suspicious in March or, or April or, or, or June of 2015, uh, he... This, this student was not put under a microscope by the FBI until, you know, it was back in 2014. And they found this person through messages uh, he, he was putting out on his Twitter account in, in like, January. And 
obviously we follow government surveillance, both of us, pretty closely. We, we can presume that people who send the kind of tweets this person was sending are being put in some kind of database. They're being tracked closely, especially when they have um, Muslim-sounding names or Arabic-sounding names. And, uh, and so this individual uh, became a target because uh, they were indicating support for actions by Islamic State fighters. And that, that, that then becomes, the FBI then decides that what they want to do is intercept these people and prevent them from becoming uh, al-Qaeda recruits. And so uh, they themselves go and recruit them for their own operations that they plan. And that's why people say that the FBI has become this kind of like terror factory where they're just manufacturing terrorists in a lot of the plots. I mean, the most recent one, there's a recent one last week, and it actually involves a person in Ohio. And we don't have to go into a lot of details, but I just wanted to mention that this person uh, who was involved in the sting was a, was a paid confidential informant and had a long, long, long line of, of, crim- of crimes they had actually committed um, in the past. And what the FBI does is they hire these people, and it's a way for you to expunge your record, you can you can get away with, you know, battery, larceny, assault, you can get away with theft, grand theft auto, all these different crimes, drug dealing, and then they'll wipe it away when you become an informant and help them to go after uh, these young Muslim American men. Incredibly disturbing. We are speaking with Kevin Gostola, who's a journalist for FireDogLake.com. Uh, another kind of person who is punished uh, in a way that is extremely questionable is, of course, a whistleblower out of the U.S. government. And and you've been following the story of Jeffrey Sterling, who listeners of this program and activists at RootsAction.org ought to be familiar with Jeffrey Sterling. Where is he now and what is being done to him? Yeah, just to, just to say that he was put, uh, so on June 16th, he reported to a prison the Federal Correctional Institution, uh, Englewood. Uh, it's in Littleton, Colorado. Of course, your listeners are probably thinking, I've heard of that before. That's where the Columbine shooting happened. Uh, so he's in Littleton, Colorado, and uh, this is remarkably, um, and this is the, the core of my story that I put up uh, about, uh, back in on June 15th, was about how he was incarcerated at least 900 miles, if not further, away from his home in St. Louis, Missouri. And that is, is really, really appalling um, and, and something that is really uh, upsetting to Jeffrey Sterling and his wife, Holly, who she's now going to have to get on an airplane every time she wants to visit Jeffrey Sterling in jail. Uh, they're already economically devastated by this prosecution against them that was perpetrated by the government. So she's going to have to fly uh, nearly a thousand miles uh, all the way to Littleton, uh, get to Littleton, Colorado. Uh, I'm not quite sure what route she would take. Fly, I assume she, got her, she has to go to Denver and then she'll take uh, some other transportation to Littleton, Colorado, but you but you can't drive. 
um, and this is this is really remarkable. I'm, we we complain um, just by comparison, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but one of the ways I looked at Jeffrey Sterling's case was putting it in the context of another CIA whistleblower, John Kiriakou's case. And, and for people who aren't aware, he confirmed that the Bush administration was involved in waterboarding, and that that was an official policy. He w- went to a federal correction institution in Loretto, Pennsylvania, and that was, I thought, very far away from home. That was about three hours away from his home in Arlington, Virginia. And I thought that was gross. Uh, but this is even worse, uh, that they could not find an institution for Jeffrey Sterling closer than 900 miles to his home in St. Louis. And, and did they have any justification for that? And how does it compare with the norm? I mean, sadly, it's not that unusual for uh, urban convicts to be imprisoned many miles away in rural areas that are using the, the prisons as, a, as an economic uh, advantage. Uh, is, it, is, is the norm a, a much lesser distance than 900 miles? No, and in fact, I, I, I asked for the policy. I, I wanted some, some answers from any of the appointed talking heads or spokespeople of the Bureau of Prisons to explain to me uh, what they would do in this case uh, when someone is specifically understanding that they're going to be incarcerated close to home. So in both of these cases, in Kiriakou's and Sterling's case, there is discussion in a courtroom with the judge present about how this person should be incarcerated close to their family. Um, And the Bureau of Prisons basically... Uh, ignores all of this discussion and goes about assigning somebody to a facility in the way that they choose. The only thing they have to follow in their policy is this rule of putting the person uh, within a distance of 500 miles. That's what their policy says, that they will try to place a person into a correctional institution or prison within 500 miles. But there is absolutely no accountability mechanism, which is why you can read so many stories about people who are suspect, uh, sorry, are convicted of drug offenses and uh, get incarcerated a thousand miles from home, and so their family can never visit or will never visit because they're just so far away. Um, and that's why you can uh, read stories about this being a, a much larger issue than just something where we can say this looks like retaliation against Jeffrey Sterling. Uh, now, on a more specific sense, be, because this is a extraordinary story, we're talking about a CIA whistleblower, someone who the government uh, claims uh, revealed information about a top-secret CIA operation where, you know, flawed nuclear blueprints were being passed on to Iran purposely, uh, something of that nature, where they really want to send a message, well, you can look at his incarceration in a facility in Littleton, Colorado, as clearly a part of establishing control over Jeffrey Sterling. I write about this in my post, particularly, because there were ways that they tried to control John Kiriakou when he was incarcerated that showed you how the war on whistleblowers extends to prison. And what we can expect, potentially, with Jeffrey Sterling is that they've already started to control him before he even hops 
on an airplane and, and headed to Littleton, Colorado to report for prison uh, because he was placed in that facility. And then now that he's 900 miles away from home, much further than John Kiriakou, it's even easier to isolate him. It's even easier to try and discourage him from doing something like John did. John was writing uh, letters from Loretto that we published at FireDogLake.com and talking about his experiences in prison. But they put him about 900 miles away, and that can be a way of discouraging Jeffrey Sterling from speaking out. Uh, If he was going to do things with your organization, like Roots Action, or if he was going to maybe talk to you on your radio show here, uh, that would be something the prison would discourage. And the way they can do it is by uh, having him in this facility. You know, the other thing is that they can try to bargain. They've put him so far away. The way that these Bureau of Prisons officials operate is that they'll they'll get you in a position where they'll start to give you little tiny bits of taste of freedom if you just agree to silence yourself. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, John Kiriakou was put in prison, uh, wanted uh, to get out in a halfway house with six months left in his sentence. Uh, so he was going to serve his, he, he had 30 months in prison. He was hoping to get out after 24 months. And in fact, that was an agreement. And the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons actually said, if you stop writing letters from Loretto, we would agree to letting you go to the halfway house six months with six months left in your sentence. And they violated that agreement and told him he would, you know, report to the halfway house with 84 days left in his sentence. So... They, they try to manipulate you based on your isolation in their facility. Yeah, and Jeffrey Sterling has been speaking out uh, since his conviction, uh, has been speaking with journalists, so this may be a concern of theirs. Um, we'll post information on, uh, we'll post links to your articles and uh, Jeffrey Sterling's address for those who want to write him a letter uh, at talknationradio.org. Uh, Kevin Gostola from firedoglake.com, uh, a third area where the government uh, is abusing its power that you've been looking into uh, is in going after anyone who's been of any sort of assistance to WikiLeaks, uh, including uh, an individual named Jacob Applebaum, uh, who I uh, honestly don't know that much about. Can you fill us in? Yes, so Jacob Applebaum uh, helped WikiLeaks with its uh, release of uh, information related to the Iraq wars and Afghanistan wars, uh, and also, uh, I, I believe, was involved in the collateral murder video release that you uh, might uh, remember. Uh, it was one of the most high-profile WikiLeaks releases. and Which came so from Chelsea Manning, we think, right? Yeah, from Chelsea Manning, yeah. And, and this, this, is, this is five years ago. We're, we're talking about something that happened about five years ago. Being um, someone who agreed to volunteer to help. And people, he had already had his data targeted uh, by the government. The government sought his information uh, from his Twitter account. Uh, he's IO Error on Twitter. And... Uh, as of late, he's been working on stories related to the Edward Snowden documents for Der Spiegel. Uh, he was profiled in a short film with the Chinese activist and artist Ai Weiwei um, that was done by Laura Poitras called The Art of Descent. He now lives in Berlin. He believes he's 
his lawyers advised him not to return to the United States as long as this WikiLeaks grand jury investigation is ongoing uh, because they don't think they can guarantee that he wouldn't be harassed, um, further intimidated. He's traveled to the U.S. borders. He's, you know, he's come back to the United States, crossed the border, and then detained and interrogated multiple times. Um, and even he says, been told that this is part of the government just harassing him uh, and that that's what they're going to do. So um, he received a disclosure from Google um, recently, and it was about 300 pages of documents confirming that his data had been uh, seized, uh, that, that, that the government requested it, and Google was uh, gagged from notifying him that his data was targeted, and they handed it all over and it looks like the government was really interested in if he had any information about WikiLeaks' publication of State Department diplomatic tables, which is, of course, very fascinating, uh, especially, uh, not that we'll get into it, but just the fact that this is what would have, what, what, why, how they might be trying to go after WikiLeaks to nail them on their publication of, of the State Department cables. Um, I'm wondering if it's because there's personal information in there that they claim WikiLeaks didn't uh, redact that they should have, that other media organizations did. Um, and then, you know, right now we've got news that WikiLeaks is publishing more stuff from uh, another source that has cables from Saudi Arabia, uh, which once those are translated should have some pretty good bombshells in them. Uh, so it's just it's a remarkable thing, this WikiLeaks grand jury investigation that is ongoing uh in the last week, Julian Assange marked three years in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, there are other editors in WikiLeaks that have received notices of search warrants on their Google data. Um, and Google's exceptional because their legal services actually are fighting the government in court, trying to notify users. Um, but five years down the road, I think what's, what's, what's remarkable about uh, the one quick thing I want to get in here is, is just that the government actually does not recognize that Jacob Applebaum is a journalist and says that much in their documents to uh, the magistrate court where they were arguing over uh, whether they could notify Jacob Applebaum that his data was targeted. And I want everyone who's listening to know that the thing that they fear the most is the fact that people are having their data targeted in this bogus investigation, um, because um, to, to quote something here, uh, the government basically said, journalists have no special privilege to resist compelled disclosure of their records, absent evidence that the government is acting in bad faith. Even if the subscriber were to bring a First Amendment challenge, he could not quash the order because he could not show that the government has acted in bad faith, either in conducting its criminal investigation or in obtaining the order. And, uh, of course, nobody could quash it because uh, it's kept secret. His lawyers can't mount a challenge to um, a, a secret request for his data. So, obviously, they, they need this all to remain secret, and they worry that it's going to become public, and then they're going to have to defend it out in the open, and they won't be able to defend it. 
So, so what does he lose by not being recognized as a journalist? It sounds as though there is a claim that journalists, like everyone else, have no rights. Uh, and in fact, I, I saw this morning that Germany had arrested, at the request of the, the so-called government of Egypt, uh, an Al Jazeera journalist in Germany, at least briefly, and, and apparently released him. Uh, is Jacob Applebaum at risk even in Germany? And, and how would being a journalist protect him? It, being a journalist wouldn't protect you, especially under uh, President Barack Obama's administration. I, I mean, there's an analogy to be drawn between James Risen and Jacob Applebaum in the sense that the reason why they want Jacob Applebaum's data is probably more to facilitate an investigation into people who are higher and, and, and involved in running the actual organization of WikiLeaks, uh, which they won't recognize as a journalistic enterprise. Uh, they see it as something else. Uh, they're more interested in going after people inside of WikiLeaks than somebody who volunteered for WikiLeaks. But they believe that Jacob Applebaum had uh, intelligence, I guess is probably the word they're thinking, on how to uh, how this operation was working, how they were uh, going about leaking or, or getting the leak and publishing the cables. Um, and, so, and that's something they view as a crime. So... Um, I don't know if, if Jacob's in danger in Germany, uh, but I think he's certainly safer in Germany than he is in the U.S. I guess it just depends on where you see the threat coming from, um, and, and that's the, the trick for, for journalists in, in this age, because I think any government could be posing some kind of a threat. Um, we saw what the U.K. government did to Glenn Greenwald's partner, David Miranda, when he was detained for nine hours under a terrorism law. So um, any government could be uh, stopping a journalist or family members of journalists. Uh, it just depends on who you're trying to protect yourself against. And, and Jacob's particularly worried about the U.S. government because he's experienced retaliation before. And so he's stuck in Germany, and Julian Assange is stuck in England, and not even just in England, but in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, inside a small building for three years. Uh, and uh, as I understand it, the prosecutor in Sweden uh, with this uh, sexual assault prosecution uh, had finally agreed to interview Assange in London, and then canceled and didn't show up and didn't do it. Uh, where, does, where does that stand in terms of, of the way that, uh, as most of us see it, the U.S. government is trying indirectly to get at Julian Assange? Yeah, from what I can tell, especially since uh, the statute of limitations on these charges, it's going to elapse this year. I think it's by about August, if not September. And uh, so how does the Swedish government charge Julian? Um, I, I don't know. I'm not a, a Swedish legal expert, but my sense would be that they would have no case. And uh, it's really uh, kind of flabbergasting to me that they don't go ahead and interview Julian in the embassy unless uh, their decision to not go and interview was a result of pressure from U.S. government or, or some other government, uh, or if there's some kind of power politics going on that you and I don't quite grasp. Uh, I don't know if there's something going on. The U.S. sees Julian Assange's case as part of some kind of proxy battle against Ecuador, because Ecuador is 
been taking on the United States and their upset at Rafael Correa. I don't know, but um, I, don't, I liked Rafael Correa's point about the fact that this man, Julian Assange, has been in this embassy for three years now. Um, and uh, if uh, and Rafael Correa's point was if uh, a Latin American fugitive, say an Ecuadorian fugitive, was in a U.S. embassy or a Western country's embassy and had been holed up in there for three years, uh, the outrage would be so overflowing and palpable that uh, Ecuador would be almost forced to give up any sort of prosecution at this point. They would they would have to grant that person uh, or allow that person to be granted asylum and, and move on with their lives without they, continuing to target them. They would, in fact, be bombed as likely as not. <laughs> we, we, we have been speaking with Kevin Gostola. We could go on for hours. We'll have to have you back on. Kevin is at firedoglake.com. Kevin, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.